Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Now let's find out if TalkScript is a type of podcast for you. Welcome to the TalkScript podcast. I'm Anthony Ciccarello. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Sam Menza. Hello. And Tori Rice. Hey. I'm back. I feel like I just wandered into a strange broom closet that I forgot about. Well, we are glad to have you back, Tori. Today, we are speaking with Victor Savkin, the uh, co-founder of Narwhal, and we're going to be speaking with him about the Annex suite of DevTools. So welcome, Victor. Hi, everyone. All right. So before we uh, dive into our topic, we should highlight some of the features the TypeScript team has released since our last episode. Sam, can you kind of go over some of the, the last releases and highlight some of the main features that they have put out. Yeah, there was two updates I found in particular that were my favorites. I thought that in the TypeScript 3.9 update, there was an expanded uncalled functions check that basically will alert you when a function is not called in an if condition, which will hopefully lead you to a lot less errors in your code in the future so that you don't forget to basically run a function in an if statement when you really don't mean to. So that will be handy going forward. And the other update I found particularly interesting was a TypeScript 4.0. There is a lot of updates to the typing for tuples and two updates I found in particular that were pretty interesting that gave typing tuples a lot more flexibility was they allowed the spread syntax to be used when using generic types to type a a tuple. So that's going to be like super handy going forward before you weren't able to do that. And then the second one is that they allowed it so that you can use the rest syntax anywhere in a tuple, whereas before you could only use it at the end, like the last element in the tuple. So that's like super handy going forward as well. So I think I will be using these updates going forward. And those are, those are my favorites anyway. There's a lot more as well. Of course, you could look at the release notes, but that was my favorites. Anything on using couples of tuples? <laughs> I feel like I'm in a Dr. Seuss book every time I hear the word tuple. And I'm going to just side with you that it's tuple and that people who say it differently are wrong. We're going to start a big controversy right now. Is it tuple? Is that the uh, no the alternate? Yeah, that is the alternate. It's the wrong way to say it, if that's what you mean. <laughs> but yes. Like, you know, when someone has a few kids and they have quintuplets... No, they don't have quintuplets. They have quintuplets. Anyway, just my random thought of the day. You know, it's November 4th when we're recording this, 2020. So it's been a long night. It has been a long night. Yeah, I think some of the tuple or tuple stuff that was added in 4.0 is one of those things that like gets really complicated really quickly, but also has a bunch of benefits. Being able to take like parameters, for example, and... and keep track of those types as I get passed around seems really powerful. I also think it's funny that something like the unused function check gets added. It, it's kind of one of those things where there's so many pitfalls that are easy to fall into that. It's like when someone actually calls that out, it's like, Oh yeah, that's, that's something that I've done many times where I've tried to figure out why it doesn't work and right. forgot my parentheses. 
Yeah, that's definitely like one of those like small errors that could come up that it's like you're just staring at the code for, you know, a while and you still can't catch it. Like, what? what's where's the actual fail, fail coming from? All right. So thanks for that, that update. Before we get going, I wanted to give uh, Victor a little chance to introduce himself. So welcome to the show, Victor. And thanks for joining us. Can you tell you a little about yourself, what your role is at Narwhal? Sure. So I'm Victor and I used to be at Google on the Angular team for many years. About four years ago, uh, a few folks on the Angular team, Jeff and I, so we left Google to start a company called Narrow. And what we do at Narrow is we build tools for TypeScript and JavaScript, sort of build tools, right? And then we help companies uh, use those, right? That's how we make our money. I am the CTO of Narrow, so I'm architecting NX and everything around it. Great. I'm really looking forward to diving into NX and, and all the functionality that you have built into that tool. But before we do that, it's time for a quick quiz. Seeing as you are co-founder of Narwhal, I thought it would be fitting to do a quiz about Arctic animals. Okay. And Victor, you'll be going up against the two co-hosts here, Sam and Tori. Mm -hmm. This will be a multiple choice quiz just to kind of kick us off. All right. Everyone ready? I'm ready. I actually thought that this was a show about narwhals. And so I crammed all night. That's why I said that that was a late night last night is because I was cramming for this. And so it's good to know that this is actually not going to go to waste. That's why we were all staying up last night. That's the real reason. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reason. There's no other plausible reason. All right. Well, let's see how well you studied, Tori. The first question is about narwhals. So a narwhal's tusk is actually its... A, right tooth, B, left tooth, or C, two teeth that grow together. Victor, when you want to start? Oh, my God. Hmm. Let's say it's the two teeth that grow together. It looks like something that would be a good pair of teeth. All right, Victor, going with uh, answer C. Tori, you want to answer? Oh, I'm going to let Sam go, and then I'll answer. I don't think that's the way it works. <laughs> it doesn't work that way? No. But I was the one that studied. Yeah, so you should know the answer. I do know the answer. That's why I'm going to let Sam go first, because I'll just give her the answer, because I'm going to be very confident. <laughs> it's really true, because we all know that Tori studied, so we'll just copy him. Like cheaters. I say A, the left tooth. It's the most important tooth of the narwhal. I'm going to say that it is actually two teeth, and they do spiral around each other. And interestingly, they kind of come up through its head. Like if you ever look at an narwhal, it looks like it's got this horn coming out of its forehead, but it's really the teeth come out of its head, like vertically. It's really weird. I think it's two teeth because I've seen the spiraling. Let's see. That's terrifying. Well, the correct answer is its left tooth. Dang it. Yes. I didn't study. Just to be clear, I didn't study. Sam, you said the wrong letter, but I'll, oh, I'll give it to you because you did pick okay, the right answer. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to file a court challenge right now. I got my lawyers working on it <laughs> as we speak. Like I actually said Because I think that that, yeah. there's a technicality there. She wrote it one way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, assuming the ruling stands, Sam is in the lead with one point. Good job, Sam. Going on to our second question. When giving birth to cubs, what's the longest time mother polar bears have been known to go without eating? Is it A, up to four months, B, up to six months, or C, up to eight months? Victor, what do you think? 
Hmm. Uh, well, let's do B. Six months is long enough. Going with the middle answer, uh-huh. B. Tori, what do you think? Oh, man. Boy, that's a tough one. So it's four months, six months, or eight months? Is that what you said? Yeah. And it's when they give birth, specifically? This is when they're known to go the longest time without eating. Oh, all right. I'm going to say... I'll go with four months. I mean, I think your kids got to be able to go eat on their own by four months. Like if you can't find a pan, if you can't find something to eat, you know, like maybe a narwhal or something like, I don't know what to tell you. All right. So Tori's going with four months. Same. What's your answer? I'm also going to go with a four months, four months. Well, you are all incorrect. It's actually eight months. Oh my God. They do sometimes go four months, but the longest known is eight months, which is insane to think about. Wow. That sounds awful. I once went eight hours and it was too much. Yeah. Yeah. Going on to our third question. Snowy owls usually remain up in the Arctic, but have been sighted as far south as either A, Panama, B, Colorado, or C, Hawaii. And this is the furthest south that they've been seen. Victor? Hmm. I've been wrong twice. So uh, let me think of what I think is a good answer and do something else. Um, I mean, let's do Colorado. I don't know. Colorado, that's a good choice. Tori? Well, first off, I just want everyone to know that I am sure you did not look this one up because you are an avid birder. And I assume this one was just the real question you wanted to ask. And the rest of it was fluff around it because there's a narwhal involved. (laughs) I would think it'd be really hard to fly to Hawaii. So I'm going to say Panama. Panama. All right, Sam. I'm going to also say Panama. Well, the correct answer is indeed Hawaii. What? Yes, they have been sighted in Hawaii. It's assumed that they actually hitched a ride on a boat because that would be an insane distance to fly. But that is the furthest south they've been seen. I'm calling shenanigans on this question then. How are they like- That is shenanigans. But if they're made to like, drive in the Arctic, would they like die in Hawaii? Because it's like too hot for them or something but you said they had to fly there. Yeah, they also had to fly there. This, this is cheating anthony <laughs> all right we can throw the question out seeing as no one got an answer on i'm it, a so. sore loser with trivia games and <laughs> games in general if you didn't know so all right we'll do one more question beluga whales have been known to do what either a mimic human speech b rest on top of sea ice or c live for 120 years Hmm. I actually saw a bunch of those when I was a child, right? I don't remember them mimicking speech at least well enough. Let's say they can rest on the... Where did you see these? They're supposed to be not been kept in captivity, like, you know, not survive in captivity, but in Russia where I grew up, they are kept in, like, zoos or whatever, right? So in aquariums. So um, they make noises that I don't think resemble human speech. So I would say, let's say they rest on ice or something. All right, Victor's going with resting on top of the ice. Tori, what's your answer? I forgot what the options were. There was human speech, resting on ice, and what was the third one? Live to 120 years. Oh, i got to live to 120 years. Whales can live crazy long times, so that one wouldn't surprise me. All right, Sam, you are currently in the lead, so... I see. Hmm. I think they also rest on ice. I feel like the mimicking human speech would be a little bit, a little bit weird. It'd be like actually a little bit disturbing if they were making human speech. Give a whale said hello to you. 
All right, we got two for resting on top of the ice and one for living 120 years. You are all incorrect again. No. Mm. Human, let me get human speech? No way. That's crazy. They have been known to mimic human speech. There was actually an incident where uh, some divers would go down and they would hear the other driver telling them to go up above water or something like that. And it turned out that it was it was actually narwhals imitating human speech. That's crazy. Wow. I think you are thinking of Finding Dory where they mimicked human speech. I think that's what you're thinking of. Yeah, that's probably what it is. All right. Well, this has been quite the challenge. Sam did completely blow out the competition with her one correct answer. Yes. So, Sam, you get the award of being the most well-versed in Arctic animals. So, sorry, Victor, I see that Arctic animals is not your strong suit. Yeah, it's not. But let's instead uh, dive into something that you are, in fact, an expert on, which is the DevTool NX. So can you explain to us at a high level what NX is and and what it would be used for? Sure. I guess you can think of NX as sort of like a VS Code of build tools in that there is a core of NX that is generic. It's robust CLI, like a VS Code plugin with it. Uh, It has a generic tasks runner uh, that supports task orchestration, distributed computation cache, and lots of other things. And all of this stuff can be used with, with anything, really. But around this core, there are plugins for particular technologies like React or Next, Angular, Node, Cypress, etc. And also around this core, there are things like GitHub integration and the editor support. So the core is very important. It's probably the most interesting part from the engineering point of view, right? But the ecosystem of plugins is perhaps just as important or even more important. We actually wanted to know what kinds of teams NX was most helpful for. Yeah, so I think that if you're talking about the, the technology or the size, right, we can talk about the size first, for example, and say a lot of marketing that we do when we talk about NX, we talk about sort of monorepos, which implies large scale, but doesn't have to. So I think it's actually useful for teams of all sizes, like small and large, right? It's just it's useful for different reasons. So for smaller teams, if you're like a startup or whatever, uh, you can get a productivity boost by not having to... Uh, stitch all the tools together. Let's say if you're building like a React app or something like that, right? You don't have to stitch React setup with Cypress, JS, TSLint, Storybook, with TypeScript, etc. right? Uh, it's not like it's super hard to get it all working individually. It's more that the JS ecosystem or the TS ecosystem is such that having a coherent experience is hard. Every single tool is straightforward. The combination of the tools is where it can get challenging. And because of the plugins and X provides, it kind of gets easier, right? You can set it up like in minutes, quote unquote, right? So it, it works well for that. If you have a larger team, like an enterprise org or something like that, you sort of value on X for different reasons. You more value the core features of X, like code reuse and consistency, for example, enabled by the support to monorepos, right? And we can talk about monorepos in a second. Or like very fast builds and CI that are enabled by computation caching and code change analysis. So you care more about sort of the fundamental things that the next does, right? If you're a larger team, right? But the productivity gains, of course, more obvious if you look at a larger project or a larger team, but it's not necessary because Onyx is a tool for large projects only or something. It's just if you have a large team, like an enterprise work or like a large startup or just a large project, you have more productivity waste, right? So you can sort of, a good tool can help with that waste that smaller teams don't tend to have, right? And again, it's similar to uh, lots of things around. Like if you look at TypeScript, for example, it's useful for small scripts. I use it 
every time I write any script, like a node script. But it's really almost a necessity for, or something like this at least, is a necessity for larger projects, right? So it's the same. Uh, the value is there, even at a small scale, but it's more apparent when you go to like a larger project or a larger team. If you look at things like who is it good for tech stack-wise, in that, like, do you have to use React or Angle or anything? Uh, that would be a different angle, right? The size is one, the tech stack is, is the other one. And uh, because some folks on the core team came from Google, right, and came from the Angular team, there is some association of an X being, like, good for Angular, which is true, right? The first plugin we had was for Angular because, you know, worked on Angular, we had a lot of folks who wanted our help with Angular, so it seemed like a, a good fit. But for uh, for a long time, it's been a generic tool that is not Angular-specific. It's sort of uh, impartial, right? The core is generic. And if anything, the core and X team spends more time uh, investing into React plugins because of, I guess, there is more of a lack of that type of build tool in the React ecosystem, so it makes more sense to put more effort in there. Like in core React stuff, next to Gatsby or React Native, if you build all those things in a monolithic-like fashion, you can get a lot of cool things going, right? So the JS and TS stack in general, where we are mostly invested in, right? So uh, if you're building a JS, like a Node app or front-end app, that's what we are focusing on because I think the market is just huge. But there are plugins for other things like Java, Go, Python, you know, lots of other things. We ourselves, for example, build our APIs in Kotlin, so in Java, right? And we build this on X, it works fine, right? Computation cache and everything else works in the same way because it's generic, right? I guess that's the answer, right? It's useful for teams regardless of the technology you use, but in particular useful for teams that use JS or TS, right? Either for backend or frontend or whatever. But it's also useful for teams of different sizes. You can be a startup, it can be handy, but obviously a lot of our clients, people will help, not startups, right? Because they don't have the money, so it's like larger companies. So it's useful for them as well. Okay, cool. Can you integrate projects with different languages in like the same project? Like say you have like a, I don't know, project in PHP and like a project in like JavaScript. Can that be done? Yeah, exactly. There is a lot of value in having the same technology across. Like if you use, for example, TypeScript for backend or frontend, and let's say you use GraphQL to talk to the backend, right? Then it's easy to generate interfaces, you know, it becomes sort of a very... So the uh, the nature of like going from backend to frontend, reusing some chunks of code, whether they're interfaces or just actual uh, like runnable code, right? It's cool, but sometimes, right, for lots of reasons, right? You want to use something else on the backend, right? For example, we use Kotlin because, you know, Certain things are easier to do in Kotlin on the backend, right? And it works well, and uh, you know it's not a problem. Cool. Can you, can you like share dependencies across projects like that, even if they are in different languages? Yeah, exactly. So that's the cool part that all of those parts sort of form a. I don't want to go to like a, a technical, but basically there's a build graph the tool constructs, right? And different nodes in that graph can be written in whatever you want it to be written in. The plugin sort of provides uh, a way for you to interact with this node, so you can tell an X what it means to build it or to test it or whatever, right? to do something to it. And when you execute operations on this graph, when you're saying, I want to test everything that is affected by my PR, for example, right? And then to figure out what part of your repo, of your workspace is affected by your PR, and regardless of what different parts of your graph are written in, of your workspace are written in, it will run the test in a way that sort of abstracts it away. Uh, so it works well. You usually don't even know what... Uh, particular part can be written in, right? If you put, like, pull the repo, and let's say some other team is working on the backend, from your point of view, it's a lie to say it's completely irrelevant because you sort of, sometimes you have to know, right? But it can be irrelevant. If you need to run an API to, for example, run your frontend to interact with the API, right? You actually don't care what the API is written in, right? From your point of view, you're just interacting with the same command, 
You're just saying, I want to serve this API, whether it's written in Node or in PHP or in Java or in .NET, it doesn't matter. Yeah, well, that's like definitely super useful then for tons of different projects. Hmm. It's been interesting to see how NX has kind of evolved because I, I remember when NX first came out, mostly focused on Angular applications, and it's been interesting to see all the different plugins that, that have been added both by you and by the community. And so it's interesting here that you talk about the need for those plugins for the React community, but that makes sense considering that the Angular CLI already has a lot of code generation tools for things like components. Yeah, I actually think that's that the thing that the Angular team, however you like or dislike the part of the, like the framework itself, right? I think that the tooling, that the CLI was actually a very strong point, right? That you can have a consistent dev experience when you hop from project to project, right? And the tooling does a lot for you to abstract some of the parts away and give you a nice, like a consistent way to interact with Angular projects, right? And the React community doesn't have that type of tooling, right? At least in the quality that we would expect, right? So in a way, there is the usefulness of an X for Angular folks, for all of Angular folks, is more in the monorepo side of things. They're like, oh, I can do a bunch of things in here, right? Share a code or whatever. That's really cool, right? Whereas when we talk to React teams, some of our clients who are React, right? Who are React developers, they value sort of the core primitives. Like, oh, I can, you know, generate stuff and preview stuff and use all the things that, like say, Angular folks take for granted, right? And they value that more because it's actually differentiated for them, right? Whereas for Angular folks, it's not. Yeah, that opinionated kind of code generation and tooling is definitely a a contrast between the two communities. And so being opinionated does allow you to have more consistency across projects, which is definitely a big win for trying to share code and trying to move people across teams. Yeah, yeah. So when teams come and start checking out NX, are there certain things that teams will sometimes have a misconception about? Like you talked about how... It's not just Angular. You've talked about how it's not just for large teams, but what are some of the things that people get confused on? It's a very good question. And I think that it's partially perhaps the way we communicate what it does, right? We use one word a lot on our website, on on our docs, and this word is monorepo. And the word monorepo evokes very different emotions and different thoughts in different people, depending on the background that you came from. For example, right, if you are... As someone who is familiar with, say, uh, how Google does development, that you know about the Google Monorepo, which is a super giant repo with, like, you know, everything in it, and it's very spooky or whatever, right? And uh, most people who look at it, it's like, okay, I don't need that, okay? I don't have it. I don't have this problem, okay? It's like a hundred of us, for example, right? We have a science book project, but in no way we need this infrastructure, right? So it's useless, right? That's one sign. On the other side, you have folks who only know, say, Learner or Yarn Workspace or something like that. And so like, okay, Lerna, okay, I've tried, okay, it's handy, but it's nothing special, right? So it's either, and Lerna in general is more about code collocation than the monorepo style development in the sense that like Google or Facebook or something like that, right? So you either have sort of either too much, like I don't have this problem, or it doesn't do enough for me to try it, right? It's either too much or too little. From our point of view, right, when we use the word monorepo, and I know that, you know, words are very hard to use. I am a mathematician, uh, Mm -hmm. and so I... That's why mathematicians create all these new words to say, like, okay, this is a weird word. We just made it up so you don't have, you know, uh, any misconceptions about it, right? So it's just, it's new, right? Just accept it, right? So it's something about it appeals to me, but, you know, it doesn't appeal to anyone else. So we use the word monorepo. So from our point of view, if your application consists of, say, two modules that can be developed independently, you have a monorepo. Okay, it's a very small monorepo with two things, but it's good enough for us. 
If you have a front-end app and the API, and let's say the API, it can be even the fake API, just for development only. You already have a monorepo. So uh, when we use the word monorepo, we don't mean it has to be ginormous. No, no, you can have lots of monorepos in your organization. It simply means you have more than one thing you can look at as an independent thing, right? When you're working with your code, right? That is it. But at the same time, we don't just do what Learner does in that we offer some of the things you expect from uh, like a large-scale monorepo uh, tool, right? That you can see, for example, at Google, right? Things like computation caching, for example, where if, uh, I don't know, Susan somewhere else on my team runs a particular command, does something, right? And if I do something like that, my command and X will be able to get the result of your command execution and reuse it, right? So I don't have to compute everything from scratch every time I pose a main branch, right? I can reuse someone else's computation. And that property alone can help you scale your repo, your project, much, much, much larger than you would normally get, uh, say, with Learner. And there are a lot of other things that Annex does in the same sort of area, right? So your repo doesn't have to be as big as Google. Any, any size project kind of can be thought of as a monorepo. At the same time, it's not as bare bones as like Yarn Workspace. It actually does stuff around code organization that helps you manage it, right? So that's sort of the main misconception that I see that we don't need it because it's either too small or it's too big, right? Just ignore the word monorepo. Just forget about it, right? Just try it and look at capabilities individually. And then you can sort of see, okay, do you have a problem that it solves? And I don't know, We believe me, we spend so much time trying to come up with how else can we talk about it if we don't use this word? And it's actually challenging because you can say, like, it's structured development. Okay, it's way too vague, right? So now no one knows what I'm <laughs> So it's actually challenging to convey sort of the core premise without showing it. Once you show it, you're like, okay, I get it, right? Sure, you have two things, you have dependencies, boom, right? But it is a challenge. Yeah, it definitely is a lot more understandable to see it like a mono repo in action than try to convince people of mono, of like the benefits of a mono repo. Because I feel like, you know, when you tell somebody initially, like, oh, like, you know, you explain to them what a mono repo is, I feel like the first thought would be like, oh, that sounds like a mess. Every project in one repo, that sounds like, you know, it would be like messy. There'd be like different teams like fighting over like maybe the structure of like a like a common dependency or something like that. Like I could see that being hard to convince people or like without just being like, hey, here's an example. Like this is how it actually, you know, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's unfortunate, right? In that I think a lot of folks who came, who worked at a company that has a well-managed monorepo, right? They can sort of see it's not just one giant repo, right? Monorepo is not a repo where everyone can commit a bunch of random stuff, right? A structure has to be imposed on it so you can actually interact with it in a way that doesn't result in a big ball of math like situation, right? Where you actually have boundaries, lots of other things. And the, one of the things that's actually, I wrote a, an article some time ago talking about monorepos in general, not just about an X, but like misconceptions about monorepos. One of them was this, the big ball of mud monorepos, like misconception that, well, if everyone can write to it, well, like wait in a few months, it's going to be a mess, right? It's not really hard to imagine, it's not even hard to imagine. There are tools like an X and others, right? That help you impose structure where you actually can control the shape of the repo a lot more than you can control the shape of a polar repo, right? In that, in a polar repo, you often, for example, can introduce dependency on some other package without that package knowing, right? If you publish something to a local package registry, like NPM registry, I can just depend on it. And you don't know, and you cannot tell me anything, right? So suddenly you thought of it as your own package. Now I depend on it and you cannot change it. You can tell me that it was a private package. It's too late. My thing is in production, you know? So now we are forever tied, right? By this dependency. So in a monorepo, it's very easy to say, actually, you cannot depend on me. I actually have visibility, like sort of public-private kind of situation where 
that thing is private to my team. Even though it's a package, the packages from my team can depend on it, but you cannot, right? It's a trivial thing in the modern repo, and it's not like it's impossible to do in a polar repo, but you have to guarantee that every repo respects that, right? And you can never get that in, in practice. So it's surprisingly the other way around, but you know, it's uh, one of those things where uh, the word mono, I think it's just a mono part of it, right? Scares people away a bit. I have one actually other question I'm curious about, like, how would a team even start? Like, say you have like a gigantic company with like all of these different projects. Like you talked a bit about like the benefits of like the initialization of a project, like it makes it super easy to just spin up a new project. But like, how do you get like, you know, mess of like 20 different projects? Like, how do you even start to like convert that into a monorepo? Yeah, that's the, uh, surprisingly, the technical part of it is not the hardest part. Like, you can figure out, okay, we'll, like, lay it out, put some structure in there, and then slowly sort of refactor your way into a more manageable, you know, and a, a good build graph, right? It's more organizationally it can be challenging, so, so there are two aspects. The technical aspects, you know, let's say you have two applications that need to merge together. Let's say they actually contribute part to the same system. They're supposed to be micro frontends. The people use this word very loosely lately. It's a two giant things that you can, in principle, put together on the same page that can, you know, form a, a system or whatever. In this case, you put them in, a, like, in two separate apps. So they are in the same repo, but they're completely disconnected. In this case, you're saying you can develop basically in the way you developed before. Not much has changed. Okay, perhaps you're running some other commands now that wrap the commands you had, but you don't gain much, but you don't lose much either, right? It's a very uh, sort of a neutral thing. And then slowly over time, you're saying, okay, now we can share code. Like we can slowly start factoring out, say, like shared components, something like that. And now we can share code between the two, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So it's a slow process. So it technically it's not, it's not hard, but the act of refactoring is what, what is hard, right? Usually the organizational side is a separate story altogether, right? You can have a like really well functioned organization that you can sit together and say, honestly, we are part of the same work or even separate, like different work, but we work on the same system. How about we, just collaborate in this fashion and agree on things. And yes, we're going to have a single repo, but you know, you can, in most tools, like on GitHub or any, anywhere else really, establish like ownerships with different folders. So nothing really, is, there is not, nothing scary about it, right? You have to approve all the changes to your app, right? So no one can merge secretly without your knowing. So that's fine, right? That often works, but some organizations are a bit tougher where, you know, you can say, okay, now you have that and we're going to have a single CI/CD pipeline. So like, well, who's paying for it, right? We're not paying an extra door. <laughs> like, so yeah. things like that are surprisingly the hardest parts. Technically, you know, it's not hard to put stuff together and stitch it, you know, and have some guarantees about it provided by the tool. The organizational battles, the most fun ones, right? They can be soft. That's it, not right. Yeah, we have a lot of, we work with folks who, like financial institutions, who are not known to be the most agile per se, right? In rearranging their organization structures. And even they can figure it out. If they can see the gains, and often they can. After a while, like, okay, it's actually better this way, then they commit, right? But it takes some time. It can take a year or even more so once you're like, oh, it's kind of the same. I don't feel like committing, right? And then once they commit, that's it. They can actually unleash a lot more, like code reuse and lots of other things. It's amazing how much code and like, I don't know, just like general, you know, building applications. Like you think it'd be like mostly technical problems when dealing with, you know, building applications and converting everyone to a monorepo. I mean, but I feel like, more times than not, I feel like developers have to, they, they run into legitimate issues with dealing with corporate culture, corporate like structures. I feel like we run into these things all the time as developers, but like a lot of, a lot of people just think we like code all day, but I feel like that's very not true. Have you thought at all about making your slogan, if financial institutions can figure this out, so can you? Because that was some low-key shade that I really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually, like, they are under constraint that I cannot even imagine. So I, in no way I'm criticizing the folks who are managing it. So 
yeah, we are, we are a small team. Of course, we can sort it out in like half an hour during the call, right? They cannot do it, and it's fine. Oh yeah, they just have institutional things. It's it's definitely not saying that they aren't technically competent for sure. But it is yeah, kind yeah, of funny yeah. because all of the developers at those places that I've talked to roll their eyes at the amount of red tape and institutional hurdles that seem to exist only to make things more difficult for their lives. At least that's how they perceive it. So, Yeah, that's true. So I think there is an element of truth in it in that, especially as a developer who wants to like make progress, right? Just like put a bunch of stuff and make it work, right? Every step that you have to go through is a hustle. So it's something you don't want to see, right? So for sure. And it goes to the degree where when people ask, because in the morning, it was the most important question that once you sort of get it, you know, uh, rolling or whatever, is so how do I partition my code in the packages that are coherent? So how do I build this graph where I don't have this one giant node, the app, right? But I have smaller units that have public API that I can reuse or don't even reuse, just have can think of and develop independently, right? And my answer was always, look at ownership. It doesn't matter what your architecture tells you, dumb components, smart components, or whatever. Really, the only thing that matters is, does your team own it? Or some other team who you don't talk to on a daily basis will own it. Because essentially, the ownership, the organizational structure is like 10,000 times more important than any technical architectural stuff we can talk about, right? If you can figure out the organizational stuff and reflect it in your code, you know, you sort of want it better already. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can, I can see like dependency ownership being a point of contention as well. If like, you know, one team is used to like updating like a dependency, but both teams share the dependency. It's like who then updates the dependency, you know? like Yeah, no, that, that is one of the things where you don't have to do it. You know, like you can have two copies of the same dependency, right? That does work technically, but we strongly advise against it. And the reason for that is, A, you know, like if Google can do it and have a single version of X, right, in, for this 10,000 apps or whatever, right, perhaps uh, a startup with like two apps can do it as well, okay? So so it, it is doable, but the gains of having a single version policy, the, the property you get is that when you browse the code as a human being, right, and you see an import from, say, React or whatever, or what, it doesn't matter from where, from a particular package, you know that the two files you look at with the same import, because you look at the source code as a human being, it's hard for you as a human being to say, oh, it's a different version, meaning that the two things I'm building right now, right, they should be compatible, should be able to reuse this part. You actually can't because those two things depend on different versions, right? And now if you want to reuse it, which version are you going to use? Are you going to add a version and try to pretend you have a SEMware, which, you know, no one at large organizations respects? Or, I mean, not obviously no one, right? But a lot of large organizations don't do really well, right? Uh, if you have a single version, that's not a problem. Whatever the code says, you have this token in this file. If you have the exact same token, that file, that's the exact same token, right? It's like they're exactly the same, meaning that it's much easier for you, the human being, to just reason about what's going on, right? But the cost is there. So now if you need to update the version of React or Angular or whatever, right? So who is doing it? Like who is pushing this change through? And for smaller monorepos, we'll say a handful of apps, it tends to be reasonable because you can automate a, big, like a lot of it, right? So it becomes, it's not that hard to do. But if you have a very, like a large scale, repo with like dozens and dozens of unrelated apps, okay, then you have to sort of take ownership, right? Like I said, at Google, the Angular team does it. Version of Angular is updated or whatever, every commit that comes in the, the repo, they will have to update the clients. And But they have like, again, you know, thousands and thousands of apps, right? So it's much harder. For most repos we look at, we are not talking about, you know, billions of lines of code or whatever, right? We're talking about a much smaller system, right? That you can actually do it realistically with a small team. Cool. I think we also had a couple of questions about the open source community. We've seen that you, our world's very active in, in open source and 
I guess we kind of want to know a bit more about the company's relationship with the open source community. Okay, cool. Yeah, we are uh, strong believers in open source. I'm running Linux, and we had some problems connecting my audio to this call because oh, of this no. reason, right? So <laughs> Linux I, problems. Uh, uh, so I, I genuinely believe in this sort of the right to read, right? That you can read the code and you can make decisions, right? The code doesn't have to be free. It's nice to see it though, right? So that's good. And a lot of folks on the team came from uh, all the sort of prominent members of different communities like React, Angular, even TypeScript. And we've been for, for years. So we do have A, the experience in, I think we have the experience in building the community. And the important understanding that at the end of the day, the only thing that matters for your tool is how the community likes it. It doesn't matter how cool and advanced your tool is, right? It just doesn't matter. People have to be like, they should be able to use it, right? If they cannot use it or they don't like it, your advancements and the fact you can write a paper about it is a moot point, right? It just doesn't matter. So we do a bunch of things to try to engage the community, right? There are two aspects to that, right? One is we sort of project out, right? We share stuff, you know, we try to be as open as we can be. So we, you know, do meetups, podcasts, you know, a lot of talks, stuff like that, uh, produce content, we also do office hours. That's, I think, was successful where you can just join, you know, ask us questions, you know, we can show you stuff. So the core team members are available to actually interact with them directly, right? Not via like issues on GitHub. That's actually extremely useful. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like a lot of the time with open source projects, it can be hard to like understand the projects, I guess, like individual culture and like who runs it. Like, and I feel like that's like a very important thing to learn. But like a lot of the times, I feel like the, the, can you just, I guess, don't really think about like new members and like how the new members get involved. That's like a super good way to get the new members or like people who are interested involved. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, if you contribute to all of project, you sort of get the the feeling that you can do it. You can send a PR, but if it's your, like say first PR or whatever, right. Or you contribute to something, but not in a very substantial way. It is very stressful. It was stressful for me because you know that your thing will be out there sort of in the open. People can criticize or whatever, you know, look at it mm-hmm, critically, totally. right. It is definitely stressful. So we understand that it is stressful. Really uh, trying to lower the bar where more people feel comfortable, uh, like say contributing, right? And that's another aspect we really care about. There are two ways in general to contribute. You can either send a PR. I mean, you can contribute with like feedback and stuff and we can talk about it. But send a PR is one way and let's say building a plugin is another one. And for both of those, we try to imagine, okay, if I'm someone who perhaps is like a reasonable, like I can program a bit, right? But I haven't used an X extensively or haven't contributed to a project before. So what do I do, right? Because every project is bespoke. You go there, there's a bunch of scripts that are scary, right? You don't know what to run. You don't know where your PR is good or whatever, right? Put uh, like some effort in making like good guides, recording videos, in, like so you can, with some humor and stuff, so you can watch a video, right? It's somewhat lighthearted, so it doesn't feel like it's, you know, like you have to get it right, otherwise, you know, it's over. So you can watch the video, see how to pull the repo, you know, make a change, test stuff, debug your tests, you know, prepare the PR, send the PR. And so you have a, sort of an expectation of what the process is like and similar for plugins, right? For both PRs and plugins. So sort of more people can go there, watch it and just sort of repeat it, right? And maybe just update the docs or something like that, right? But they don't feel like, okay, now I have this repo, so what do I run to know that the PR is good? And we also try to be friendly, uh, not friendly, but friendly is very like, you can be friendly, but still uh, helpful. So, sort of more polite and welcoming for people who perhaps contribute something that we don't need in exact that way, but we can still get some value out of it. Even though sometimes at first it's obviously more costly for us, right? Uh, actually teaching someone takes more time than just like, I can just do it myself, right? Goodbye, right? Yeah. Yeah. We try to do it as much as we can for the same reason, right? That 
We understand that for an open source project, the community is basically like 95% of the value. If you ha have like hundreds of thousands of people using your stuff, your technical foundation matters, but surprisingly matters less than the people who enjoy using your stuff. As you can see, anyone who worked a large company knows about some private project that is fantastic, right? Some bundlers that is just 10,000 times better than Webpack or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter. Does it matter? No, right? Because no one is outside of that company is going to use a bundler. Because folks who are running Webpack know how to interact with the community, for example. And so I think some of the reasons why Annex is a bit more, gets a bit more adoption than some of the competing tools I won't mention, is that we actually care about the community. We don't have this sort of arrogance of, okay, look how awesome the product is, you know, just figure it out on your own, right? And leave us alone. That's, that's like a super great outlook, yeah, because I feel like that's like something that like so many, I feel like projects totally overlook, like just like the engagement of the community and making it easy for people to get involved because that, that it is you're right like it is difficult to like submit a pr and have everyone look at it i feel like people don't talk about that enough open source can be hard <laughs> like yeah it, it is hard it is hard for yeah. everyone involved okay people idealize it and then but it is stressful for a contributor because you know it takes a lot of effort unpaid work right that you have to do perhaps on a weekend right and then when someone you know closes your pr saying it's no longer relevant you're like oh you know it feels really bad because it's very easy to perceive it as you're just not as good at contributing code, right? Where someone who knows how open source project runs within, sometimes it happens not because you hate the person or the PR, just you are very busy yourself, right? You're yeah. on, on, like on Saturday as well, like merging those PRs, right? And you're like, ah, oh, there are more PRs coming, right? So it's very hard for everyone involved to feel good about the work, right? I'm not saying we're doing like the best job anyone can do, like, but we're really trying to make it, you know, less of a stressful act than it, it usually is. Yeah, that's so important when someone comes to a tool and they're like, can I use this tool to do X? And unless there's a good community around it and a good community of, of plugins and those kind of things, you're not going to be able to cover every use case. And so that community is really important for being able to adopt the tool. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Victor. Uh, this has been great discussing NX. And I've been messing around with the tool a little bit recently, and, and it's been Great to hear your thoughts, especially on code management, which is, it's really interesting to dive into both the technical aspect, but also the real people aspect of, of managing code. But for anyone looking to learn more about NX and your work, what's the best way for them to connect with you and, and with your company? If you want to try out NX, right, you can go to NX.dev and we provide different flavors of docs depending on you know, what community you come from, because I know folks feel very strongly about not using any other framework, because God forbid. So you can pick the framework you like, and you can enjoy the docs in that flavor, right? So you can only see things that are somewhat recognizable, right? Watch the tutorial, you know, check it out. Another thing that we launched a few days ago, if you go to Egghead, there is a free course about the next in there that is really up-to-date, new, and I think covers all the basics really well. Uh, if you want to engage with me personally, you can uh, try to message me on Twitter. Yeah, I try to use Twitter less, but it, it's really some of the best way, right? If you want to do it, I will try to be more responsive, right, in general. So you may not get a response right away, but, you know, within a reason amount of time, I'll get back to you. If you want to know about the company, let's say you have a giant and next project and you want some help with, right? You can go to narrow.io and just uh, learn about us, what we do and stuff, how we help folks. Uh, but really, I'm a lot more interested in folks just using the tool, right? We are doing fine, you know, we don't, We'd like more business, but it doesn't matter, right? Use the tool because that's what I care about most. My co-founder, he cares about the business. If he was here, it would be a different story, right? 
From my point of view, <laughs> don't worry about the company, right? Just worry about the tool, right? Try it out, use it, you know, try to build something cool with it. Great. Thanks. Before we go, Sam, are there any conference material coming up that the community would be interested in, in checking out? Yes, there is. Small plug. TSConf had its conference on October 9th, so that was a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, all of the talks are posted on SitePen's YouTube channel. We will post that in the show notes. TSConf had speakers such as TS TypeScript architect Anders Hedgelberg and featured talks on TypeScript such as using TypeScript with augmented reality in AWS, as well as taking a deep dive into the TypeScript compiler. So a bunch of fun topics and talks uh, if you want to check that out. Yeah, definitely encourage everyone to check that out. And thanks for joining us for this episode of the TalkScript podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of TalkScript. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us in Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter. We record new episodes every month. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript. We hope you'll call back next time. Got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba. We got a good.